morning everybody let's try that again good morning everybody good morning. it's great to be together thank you Pierre that's great um, we're uh, we're picking up on our, our little series and uh, we're looking at a part of a wider series which uh, in a sense has defined the last 15 years of my life but it's called walk as Jesus did We've been looking at it uh, quite specifically at different sort of like snapshots uh, over the last two years. And, and in one sense, the question is why? Why would we do this? Hebrews 12 verse 1 and 2 says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Anyone finish the sentence for me? The one of the elders has just said, okay, the author and perfecter of our faith. Wrong. If you go to the original manuscript, I need you, I need you to listen to me here because I've said this before. And you know what happens? It just washes over us because I'm preaching. Our is not in the original text. Our was inserted by people who were offended by the thought that Jesus himself lived by faith. They thought that Jesus just always had it all together. And that Jesus himself did not need faith. Alison, I see you wanting to put that in the picture. Okay. Okay, let me just... Uh... Is that all right? Okay. One of the things is... And I know I sucker punched you on that, but if you look at the latest textual research, you can go back to the, the manuscripts where they actually inserted that word, our, into the text. Now, the book of Revelation says that's very naughty. You don't do that to the Bible. You take the text as it is written. And the reality and discovery that Jesus himself is this unique character who is the author of faith. In other words, he, he, he invented it, he pioneered it, it preceded anyone else who had faith. There's a timelessness. But then when Jesus came to the earth, he himself perfected faith. He lived it. He nailed it. What are the implications of the fact that Jesus lived by faith? Well, I suppose that's what we're doing this course for. That's what we're doing this series and this material for, is because we're trying to wrap our heads around Jesus in the special category. We keep putting Jesus in the special category, and he is no longer, he's a hero, he's a savior. But he's no longer a realistic model of what it means to walk with God and live by faith. And uh, there's whole truckloads of theology that have been invented around that space. And I myself have preached this and taught that and etc. And in a sense, my own journey just can't escape the story. And so walk as Jesus did why has a very personal reference for me. I've been in full-time ministry for about 35, 36 years now. And, uh, 
And during that time, probably the first 20 years of that was uh, kind of doing the standard thing that you come to the Gospels and you find evidence in every story as to why Jesus is God and then you explain to people why he is so exceptional and therefore that they ought to believe in him so that they can go to heaven. But then we wrestle with the question, but Jesus was also good and we need to be good. And then if we're really messed up in our theology, we end up with this idea, I need to be good so that I can go to heaven. And so Jesus becomes, as it were, a model of niceness. That if I'm really nice to people, then one day God will be nice to me and I can go to heaven. How many of you have picked up what is called moralistic therapeutic deism? That if I'm nice to God, one day he'll be nice to me and maybe even today he'll be nice to me. I want to tell you that that's half of what our kids are learning from us when we don't get this stuff right. Moralistic in the sense that, well, if I'm good and nice, therapeutic makes me feel a lot better. And deism, we're not dealing with the triune God as revealed through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and connecting with uh, our Heavenly Father. We're dealing with a God who kick-started the world and one day we're hoping to reconnect with him. Now that's the last thing we find in the story of Jesus. I remember, and I'm being a bit harsh on myself, believe me, um, but I had preached for 20 years, like throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, epistles, apostles, the whole lot. And then 20 years before I realized that I had not preached as my, my founding text on one ministry miracle Jesus performed in which he expected to just go and do likewise. There was something of a, just a, a mental gap, and I had not seen it. I had eight files, you know, those lever arch thick files, full of small handwritten sermon notes. Eight files. Not one of them was on a ministry miracle Jesus did for someone. I had tons about the resurrection, about the crucifixion, about his baptism, about the virgin birth, and all that kind of stuff. But all I could do with the life of Jesus was spiritualize it. And so if he set someone free from a demon, I'd have to think about how we could spiritualize it so that one day people could go to heaven. And if he healed someone, I'd have to think about how I could spiritualize it. And if he was nice to a poor person or he did something merciful and just on this earth, well, we were supposed to find a reference to the cross of Jesus and then how people could go to heaven. And I've come to be deeply convinced that that's not why Jesus set people free from demons. And that's not why Jesus healed broken bodies. And that's not why Jesus created a prophetic community on the earth that subverted all the powers and social dynamics around him. I believe Jesus really does want to subvert the powers and social dynamics around him. I believe Jesus does want to heal broken bodies. I believe Jesus does want to set people free from actual demons. But as long as I keep thinking that all I need to do is learn faith in Jesus, which I do, I absolutely must, instead of learn from Jesus the faith of Jesus, 
he'll keep being this remote figure. And instead of going to the gospel to find out how we live and do mission and community and spirituality, I go there to put my faith in Jesus, whatever that might mean. Even a forensic legal exchange of righteousness on the cross. And then I go somewhere else to try and work out how to do Christian living. And I might go to popular literature, I might synthesize that and mix that. Guys, Jesus fully intended us to walk as he did. And so, in a sense, that's why I'm doing this. Now, I also need to just say, why am I going back here? Because you know, pretty much straight after my sermon last week, when you were all down in a, a long, thin little line huddled again out of the wind, you know, and the last person was about 50 meters away from me wearing a hat and dark glasses and a mask. And I had no idea what on earth was going on. Um, and I was just speaking to the wind. So, and, I mean, the Holy Spirit said to me, um, you got to do that again. No one got it. And it's remarkable how often the Holy Spirit sounds just like my wife, Cindy. Um, <laughs> man, if you haven't learned that lesson, learn fast. I wanna... So. Why do we want to do this? Jesus said, from the very beginning of the Gospels, when he was walking people into discipleship, he used two words, follow me. And that hasn't been changed by any text. Okay, so you can relax. <laughs> Trick question. Sorry, Adrian. Yeah, Adrian is relieved. Okay. Author and perfecter of faith. In other words, all faith perfected and, and begun from Jesus. And this same Jesus looked at Peter on a beach at the very beginning at his fishing nets and others. And the uh, sermon's getting good because people are moving closer. This is really great. Well, so just moving out the sun. But he says, yeah, there, there we go. There's some lovely shade right behind the camera. Why, Cliffy, why don't you guys just move there because you're going to keep cuddling. Um, Jesus says, follow me. From the beginning. And right at the end, when Peter is on a beach with Jesus after having messed up and Jesus walks with him and says, do you love me? And he says, Lord, in the end, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Peter gets worried about... My camping gear coming in use. Peter gets worried about John and everything. And Jesus says, don't worry about John. You, what does he say? Follow me. The most fundamental instruction has not changed from his first encounter till his last. The fact that Jesus has died, raised from the dead, Jesus is still saying, follow me. The fact that Jesus is going to heaven, he's still saying, follow me. You see, we assume that we need to understand something before we can do it. Rabbinical logic is very different. The rabbis taught that you need to do something before you'll ever understand it. You need to follow Jesus. You'll come to an understanding of what it means as you do it. And can we say, when, if you just think about the eternal living God... 
God. How could we ever hope to understand before we obey? We're just never going to get our minds around the one who is infinite. And so we are supposed to do what Jesus said. And he said this mirroring in John 14, and we looked at briefly last week, the faith in Jesus and the faith of Jesus. He says, you believe in God, that's great. Now believe also in me. We put our faith in Jesus, unmistakably. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, I tell you the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a complete uniqueness to Jesus. And at the same time, he says, and whoever believes in me, verse 12, will do the works I have been doing. So there's the words of Jesus that we put our faith in, but there are the works of Jesus. And in this context, by the way, he wasn't talking about being nice to your neighbor. He was talking about healing the sick and raising the dead. He's going, everything about me is transferable. Will you follow me? So. In order to make sure we don't miss the point, and I'm going to need a, a little bit of help, so I don't know, Dave and Chris and that kind of thing, if you could hand these out. You might need to multiply the, the, the handers out as a bit more. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Fred. How are we doing? Good. Okay. So, we're picking on three things, and don't worry if you can't see this. Um, again, the Holy Spirit was adamant that I should have it. So, uh, there we go. It's for the people who are online, and uh, it's going to be in the outline in front of you as well. So, here's the paradox. Here's this exquisite paradox. Jesus' identity is unique. The salvation he offers is unique. So, his identity is you believe in God. Believe also in me. Equating himself in identity with God. At the same time. Let me just do this. It's working well. Thank you. There's a bag there. We could shove it in there. Allison's got more work than he knew this morning. So we have one who is God, yet Understand this, both as God, but yet uniquely in his humanity. The fact that he is a human being, he, his work of atonement and redemption. In other words, Jesus dying on the cross for us is completely unique. No one else could do that. No one else would do that. He alone was perfect in righteousness he alone was able to willingly self offer himself in our place and do this and so we have his uniqueness as God yet his uniqueness so that's in the blue his uniqueness in his humanity his being savior and yet at the same time there is this mystery that most of his life theologian Tom Wright calls it the missing middle that that in the past we've often just jumped theologically 
following the creeds from his birth to his death. And we don't know what to do with the Jesus we meet in the middle of the Gospels. And this is the, the message that is transferable to us. And so the third point is his transferable, his transferable ministry. So we have Jesus. He is God. He is also the creator through whom all things are made. He is eternal. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He is worthy of our worship. I mean, I was just reading this morning about Peter going to the house of Cornelius in my own quiet time. And Cornelius is so freaked out by the angel visits and everything that when Peter walks through the door, he falls prostrate and wants to like revere him. Peter says, get up. I'm just a man. Now, Jesus, in one sense, could have said that. He says he could have said, get up, I'm a man. But he didn't. He received worship because he wasn't just a man. Completely, uniquely, he is Lord and God and human. And when Thomas sees Jesus post-resurrection, he falls at his feet and says, my Lord and my God. And so as God, he reveals God. He is the fulfillment of all scripture. There's nobody else on whom the scriptures land and depend and point to like Jesus. And he is the ultimate judge. Now that's a tricky one because he will judge us in his humanity. He won't judge us because he's God. Although God will be thoroughly part of the judgment. The measure against which our lives will be tested will be the measure to which they align to Jesus' life. And that's in 1 John chapter 3. So in his humanity, he is unique as Savior. In his humanity, he's uniquely able to represent us, to become our representative on the cross. And so he atones and pays for our sin, reconciles us to God. He alone has a human name that has authority in heaven and in hell. And so, you know, even, you know, the demons themselves keep trying to point out his identity. They had their own reasons for that. But the apostles would, would say in Acts 4, there is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. He is the standard or measure, I mentioned this earlier, against which we will be judged. That 1 John 1, uh, chapter 3, sorry, not 1 John 1, 3, 1 John chapter 3 says that this is how we will have confidence and set our hearts at rest in his presence, that in this world we were like him. <laughs> now, now that's got to get you thinking, surely. In this world we were like him. And through what he did on the cross, Jesus has uniquely defeated Satan and stripped him of his power. And he did that as a human being. Satan's never going to compete with God. It was Jesus emptying himself or not drawing on his divine attributes, but defeating the enemy in his humanity. That was the radical victory of God. But now what is transferable to us? The first thing is the benefits of salvation. 
We're forgiven. We're made righteous. We're set free from the sin in the past. We're reconciled to God. We are children of God. We are more than conquerors. All those are linked into our salvation. They're all linked to the great metaphors of Scripture, like He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the justifier. He is the redeemer. He is the reconciler. He is uh, the, the one who sees us adopted into the family of God, and He is the King who conquers all. And so those metaphors are there. But now, and this is where we're really coming into the material that we've been examining in the course. If you flip over your page, you'll see a picture on the back. And, uh, and the picture essentially is of Jesus at the center. There is the truth of his unique identity. Now, we'll try and improve this picture at some point. But uh, it's, it's not the ideas behind the picture that are inadequate, but like, at the center of our faith and literally at the center of our lives we've been called to put Jesus there slap bang in the middle and when we do that we find there's a uniqueness to Jesus in in the truth about him and in the grace that comes to us through him nobody else is able to extend the grace of God to us like Jesus now just about everything else in his life, starting with the fruit. So one of those spokes there is the fruit of love. You see, Jesus summarized, as it were, obedience to him in that one word. He simply said, if you've, if you've done love, then you've fulfilled all the law and all the prophets. At the same time, he says, Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and everything gets added to you. And he's talking about a lifestyle in that context of prayer, of, of fasting, of the disciplines of the, or the habits of Christianity. And these are things that we can do anticipating something that God alone can do. So if I learn how to engage God's word, God reveals himself to me. If I learn how to pray, I unlock the power of heaven. There are things that I learn how to do. They clearly things Jesus felt he needed to do. Jesus memorized scripture. Jesus quoted from it and he used the scriptures, clearly having studied it. Jesus read from the scriptures in public. Jesus prayed like crazy. Jesus prayed, especially when he was alone, but he also taught others to pray. Jesus lived in community. In other words, there were a bunch of habits that were part of his life. And we've looked at this earlier in the series. And then in, in, um, in June, July last year, we looked at the power of ministry, which are the gifts that God gives by the Holy Spirit. So yeah, we're talking about the ministry gifts that come into the church. And Jesus did his ministry overwhelmingly through these gifts. He used words of knowledge. He used words of wisdom. You know, sometimes it was just like, wow, how did he think of that? And, and, and Peter in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 is very clear that that Jesus ministry was launched through his baptism when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus. In other words, Jesus did ministry out of the relationship he had with his Father and by the anointing and enabling of the Holy Spirit. Now, where we're wanting to get to is not just have like nice things. Those have become the spokes on the wheel. 
and they are absolutely essential for the wheel to live and work and you know kind of do its thing but the tread that people are going to experience from us is community and mission now when you get home, you can take a pen, and between the word mission and community, in the wheel, you can draw a directional arrow. So go from, you know, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock and draw a directional arrow. And then from 3 o'clock to uh, 6 o'clock, you can draw an, a directional arrow. Because mission will feed into community, and community will feed into mission. They are so synergistic. You actually can't really conceptualize one. Theologian Emil Brunner said this, the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. When do you have fire? <laughs> when it burns. When do you have the real church of Jesus? It's not just when a cuddle of people with a label on the door or on the sign outside gather together. You really have the church of Jesus when people form community out of the mission of Jesus. Now, what we're going to see during this time is that we have the most awesome message, and it's been sort of like summarized earlier today, and we have the most awesome means. In other words, we show people this love. We reveal, we stop for the one we speak words of life and we engage with people literally putting a deposit as the means of our mission. Our mission is not, our mission must speak truth. Remember, at the center we'll come to Jesus. There'll be truth and there'll be grace. In John chapter 1, he says the law was given through Moses, verse 15. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're going to be bringing both truth and grace, but we have the most magnificent ways in which to both open it up and land it. And so learning to do community and mission that is defined by the, the heart of God's grace to us at the very center in the person of Jesus, unique in his identity and yet transferable in that faith. And then out of that, comes this fruit of love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and comes the shape of our lives where we learn our spirituality from Jesus. Our praying, our fasting, our reading, our engaging, our confessing, our repenting, we learn all of that from Jesus. And then we learn our means of ministry. And as that begins to grow, you will find that the Holy Spirit starts putting rubber on your wheels. <laughs> this thing will gain traction and momentum and movement. And that's why those little arrows actually are an important part. Because this is not a container. This is not a circle of who's in and who's out. It's a wheel. And you know where the hub is and you know what the spokes are that connect to the outside. But you know that until the rubber hits the road, that wheel ain't going nowhere. And so what we want to do is learn how to translate Jesus at the center into a mission that births the kind of Jesus community we read about in Scripture. And a Jesus community that leads back into more mission because, hey, they will know you are Christians by the way you love one another. 
And so mission and community brings us back to Jesus at the center, which means that community for its own sake is invariably disappointing. I know a lot of us want community. Some of us might even be signing up for church camp going, okay, I'm ready for people again. You know, I'm glad I had two years break, but I can do it again. Guys, community for its own sake is invariably disappointing. If you want meaningful community, find something meaningful to do together. Find something meaningful and challenging and demanding and sacrificial. And the byproduct will be amazing connection to others. I'm not going to go there more now because we're going to come back to this. But there's another synergistic thought. Maybe not even para uh, paradox, just another thought. And that's point three. The impact of our mission depends upon the integrity, vulnerability, and depth of our relationships with one another. So Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, when the first thing the world encounters is the love that we have for each other, something's going to happen in the postmodern mind. Pastors were discussing this in a little bit of a different context, and Bevan said this, The church has become famous for speaking truth, but being low on love. The world is not listening to that kind of message anymore. In fact, the world is demanding love and is willing to dispense with truth. It's become so cynical that truth is even possible. The world just says, love me, I don't care what else, you just better love me. Now, unless you find a meaningful, that's uh, always going to be disappointing, remember. You just demand love because you want love, it's going to be disappointing. You just want community because you want community, it's going to be disappointing. What do we tell our kids when they're struggling to make friends? Be a friend. <laughs> when the kids aren't kind, be kind. In other words, you establish something that then draws other people into that same space. Don't look so worried. Are, are, we, are we on track here, guys? Okay. Now, When we find ourselves in this space, the one thing the world is willing to look at, especially in the postmodern era, is this. Does it work? Does it work for you? They're not even asking yet, will you love me? What they're asking of the church is, can you even love one another? Like, I'm not even in. But if I do look in, can I see a people that are willing to be real and vulnerable and care and go the distance for other people who are part of that same thing? They're looking from the outside and they're not interested in our truth claims. As important as they are, they're at the very center. But we need to understand that to reach our postmodern world, we have to give them a working model. And then they will consider our truth claim. Here's the implication. 
that the depth of our relationships with one another, if those are real and sincere and genuine and costly and meaningful and missional, the depth of our relationships with one another become the most likely reason someone else will choose to follow Jesus. Not the depth of your love for them. Not the depth of what you claim to love God. But can they look into a community and see something that is real and something that works? Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a post-modern Jesus <laughs> who's helping us enter both community and mission and he's willing to do it right now. He's willing to do it this week. He's willing to do it as we step into a world where the rules of engagement are changing. But the wisdom and the relevance of Jesus is more than ever before. And the challenge comes to us. Not just how much will I take a message out there, but how deep will I go here so that the message out there has integrity. Let's pray together. Maybe you just want to take a moment and pause. Reflect, were there any new thoughts for you today? Fresh insight. Is there anything you need to go back to and question and probe and interrogate? So that's at the thinking level, as it were, the, the reasons level. But can I ask you this? Is there anything your heart is hungry for right now? What are you hoping? What is God stirring you to dream together with others? What is your heart hoping for? Father God, we thank you for Jesus. Holy Spirit, it's amazing to us that as his baptism, heaven itself opened. And you came to him like almost visibly and rested on him, equipped him, 
And in a way we don't understand, you, you completed him. The all-sufficient one was in a paradox insufficient until you came. The all-powerful one needed your power. The all-knowing one relied on your wisdom and knowledge. The all-loving one received and gave your love. Lord, we want to open our hearts to you. Jesus, you're inviting us to follow you. Follow you. Get close to you. Do what you did. And so we ask, with you at the center, that this will be our grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't run away. Jono is coming to correct me. <laughs> Thanks, Bo. Hi, everyone. Um, are there a lot more of you than I realized? I thought there were just a few in front of me. Um, I just wanted to share a testimony um, related to today's message, which is so, so appropriate, I think. Um, as a father of uh, three kids, um, especially perhaps uh, m most of your kids are still a bit smaller, but mine are not getting to the, to the age where they're getting older and doing their own thing and going out to parties and pubs and stuff like we all did and still do. But I had a call a while back from um, my oldest daughter um, from a pub and she said, not that that's surprising, but um, she said, Dad, what are you doing? So I said, I'm, I'm at home, it's evening, um, watching the news or something. She said, well, come for a drink. Um, and first of all, I don't know how many parents, kids have invited them to their local pub for a drink, but I was incredibly flattered by the fact that she was prepared to be seen in public with me in a local pub for her starters. Um, and she was with another friend of hers there, also a, a girl, um, who for some reason thinks that I'm her second dad. But anyway, I, I was, as I said, I was only too delighted to, to go and to be there. And while I was there, and on the way there, in fact, I thought, actually, I mean, as, as nice as it is, it's going to be a little strange. I'm going to be clearly well, most probably the oldest dad, one of the oldest uh, person in the pub. And it was a big pub, it's an observatory. Anyway, um, it wasn't uh, the manager, my, because it's a regular, the manager, uh, my daughter knew the manager, she introduced me to him and um, chatted well. And we, we all ended up, ended up sitting at a table. Um, and I said to the manager, who happened to come from Bloemfontein, I said, how did you escape from Bloemfontein? And he said, when he was 16, he used to listen to um, heavy metal music. Oh, and by the way, up to now, my daughter was introducing everyone as my dad, or her dad, yeah. And um, the reception was incredible, uh, far more than I anticipated. Anyway, I said to the, to the barman, so, uh, the manager, so, so, so how did you escape from Bloemfontein? He said, when he was 16, he used to in, be into uh, heavy metal music. And one Sunday, his dad dragged him physically out of his room, bedroom, by the scruff of his neck, onto the front lawn of their house, 
and there standing on the lawn were all the elders of the church and they proceeded to pray to exorcise him from Satan's impact on his life because he was listening to heavy metal music and he said from that day on uh, he never had a relationship with his father uh, and by the time he was 18 as soon as he could escape he left home and he added the rider that's why I am where I am now and there's obviously a lot of meaning in that so I said to him of course that's not Christianity Christianity is about love and um, this is what we've been hearing in the sermon today um, and we they they at this table with people that I'd never met before most of them uh, they proceeded to be a conversation about love and Christianity um, and I was saying actually that if if people don't see love in Christianity then we're doing it wrong so it's very much the same message that same evening there were a whole lot of uh, there must have been a gay community that was having a, a karaoke bar even fun evening singing evening um, and they, one of them was kept coming to bum smokes for my daughter um, and she introduced him to me as her dad and his response was won't you be my dad my dad doesn't speak to me because I'm gay and I realized just in that community of young people in the bar um, how much dads and not only dad relationships, but how much the message of Christian love is being missed. I went back, I was invited back um, a while after that to actually watch a rugby game there. And different people, exactly the same environment, exactly the same response. First of all, having a dad there, instead of being uncomfortable, everyone is only too happy to have a dad there. And most of them came with dad problems to me. Um, and the me again, the message was love, and I realized. Uh, I said to one of the one of the guys, I mean, I didn't, God gave this to me. I was I wasn't going there to preach. I happened to be to listen on the radio one day. I was listening to to the Bible when I sometimes when I'm struggling to sleep, I put the audio Bible on, and then it's going on in the background, and I fall asleep to to the scripture. How much gets absorbed is debatable. But I did, I did hear this one, this happened to at this time, happened to hear this one passage where Christ said, Do unto others as you would have them do to you. This sums up the entire law and the prophets. Now that's an incredible statement because the Old Testament is full of fairly nasty things. But what, you know, that happened. Sums up the whole law and the prophets. And Christ's message was obviously very much about love. Two commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. And then I realized in talking to uh, one of these guys that um, perhaps the Holy Spirit in us, because we, we know the Holy Spirit is supposed to guide us in, in our lives and how we live our lives. Perhaps the Holy Spirit in us is in fact a, God's giving us a prism of viewing the world as love, through a lens of love, as Christ did for us. And it just ties up so much with today's message, first of all about it being love. And secondly, finding yourself in a community where you can relate to community. I didn't go there to, to preach. I didn't go there to, to minister. I just happened to be in that community. And I discovered a need that was incredible, uh, much more than I would ever have anticipated. And the message, as Craig just ended up saying, is love. We're not getting, in a church, we're not getting the love message right. 
um, people leave Christianity to go become Buddhists or to go into meditation seeking what we all seek is love. We as a church somehow or other have been missing it. So this is just the personal experience that I had to come and share because it is so relevant to today's message. Thank you.